0: Luke 14, 1 through 11 is where we'll be today. If you got it, say, I got it. It'll also be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along there as well. Let's uh, read this together. The Holy Spirit says, One Sabbath, when he went to dine, Jesus, at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not. But they remained silent. Then he took the man and healed him and sent him away. He said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Verse 7. Now, he told the parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, Do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Amen. This is God's word and may God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. As you are surely aware, I hope today is the national American holiday known as Mother's Day. This is the day in which moms are honored via gifts and flowers and meals and the like by children across the nation. We all know that Mother's Day, what it it is, right? I'm not breaking any news about the contents of Mother's Day. What you may not know is how it came to be a national holiday. Now on May 9th, 1914, President Woodrow Wilson declared that the second Sunday in May would be a, quote, public expression of our love and reverence for the mothers of our country. However, Anna Jarvis is the one who created the movement that led to the proclamation that Woodrow Wilson gave. You see, Jarvis's mother organized women's brigades during the Civil War, and after the war ended, she sought to gather women from Union and from the Confederacy to promote peace and to denounce war. Uh, The elder Jarvis was hoping this idea would spread. So when she died, her daughter Anna sought a way to pay tribute tribute to her mother through a national holiday that would honor all mothers and make her dream a reality. Uh, Olivia Waxman at the time says, but what the elder Jarvis had probably had in mind was something different than what her daughter eventually brought into reality. Evidence suggests that the original idea was for a Mother's Day, a day for mothers, plural, not a day for one's own mother, on which mothers would get together for a day of service to help out other mothers who were less fortunate than they were. The younger Jarvis didn't like this particular idea very much and decided to go for a more uplifting feel to the day, not as a day of service per se, but as simply a day to celebrate moms, which is what it is today. Now Jarvis's Mother's Day campaign, it was funded primarily by her inheritance, and she came to resent the fact that florists and candy makers were making lots of money from the idea that she had without crediting her. Jarvis came to feel that the day was being used as a means of profiteering, she said. So not only did Mother's Day diverge from what Jarvis intended, it was even further away from the idea her own mother had for the holiday. Rather than being a day in which mothers get together and do public service, Mother's Day has become a big business day for many different companies throughout the United States. As you know, in fact, do you know this? It's estimated that about thirty-five billion dollars will be spent on Mother's Day this year. While celebrating Mother's Day is good and right, don't leave here and say Gier Val Vaughn hates mothers and days, right? Um, it's good and right. Okay, so don't hear me that say that. But it turns out, right? It's a far cry. From what it was intended to be by the creator of the holiday. it has gone from a way to serve to a way for business to profit exponentially in the spring. Again, this does not make celebrating Mother's Day a bad thing. It could be a good and right thing, okay? Uh, some of y'all already posted on Facebook, right? Vaughn hates Mother's Day. In fact, it is a biblical, yes, thing to honor your parents, right? But what we realize when we consider the origins of the holiday is that it is morphed from its intended purpose and vision of the Creator. You see where I'm going with this, don't you? We know something can be good and simultaneously be off track from its created purpose. This comes to the fore in our story today, as it has in every story that we have seen in Luke's Gospel that has anything to do with the Sabbath. Over and over again, we see Jesus interact with various kinds of religious leaders on the Sabbath, and over and over again, we see that they have missed the point of the Sabbath. We have seen that while they try to honor God through their rule-keeping on the day of rest, that their rule-keeping has actually done is make it so burdensome that no one can rest on the day of rest. We have seen that in their venture to honor God, these religious leaders burden people. We have seen in their strictness, even if their motives were good, they have missed the need to be compassionate to the needy and broken in order to lift their burdens that they might find rest ultimately in God. In the text we're considering this morning, we have two scenes. You see them? Your text divides them neatly for us. Both of them take place on the Sabbath, and both of them take place at the dinner table. In fact, if you look at your Bible, the entire section that runs from 14.1 all the way to verse 24, all takes place on the same Sabbath day, at the same meal, with the same group of people. And it centers on Jesus' teaching, and it mainly acts as a way to critique the Pharisees. So this is what we'll do, okay? We're going to look at each scene in turn. So first, 1 through 6, and then 7 through 11, and then in each scene, we'll consider The choices that are presented to us, okay? We'll have a choice in verses 1 through 6, and we'll have a choice in verses 7 through 11. And the choices will center on who we will be like, okay? I'll just give them to you right away, okay? In the first scene, will we be like the Pharisees or the man in need of healing? In scene two, will we be like the proud or will we be like the humble? So let's look at the first scene. Luke gives us the setting in verse 1. A leader of the Pharisees had invited Jesus over for a meal. And this meal in particular is on the Sabbath day. There happens to be a man there who has dropsy, is what your text probably says, which is what is now called edema, where limbs and tissue become swollen with excessive fluid, typically stemming from another medical problem. Well, typically, it's a religious leader who asks these questions But Jesus takes the initiative, and he's the one who asks first, right? He asks, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And the Pharisees remain silent. So Jesus heals the man, sends him away. Then he asks another question to the Pharisees. Would you help your son or an animal who had fallen into a well on the Sabbath? And again, they continue in their silence. So now we have a group of very religious people who are like pillars of the community. And we have a negative view of Pharisees, but the people in this context would not. And then we have a man who has some kind of disease that's apparent to everybody. No one in this scene speaks except for Jesus. But even without words, we see two diametrically opposed postures. And those two postures are truly the only two postures that we could take in encountering Jesus. So the question for us in this first scene is, which one are you more like? Are you more like the Pharisees or the man with a condition that is in need of healing? In other words, are you self-reliant or are you dependent on Christ? If you're to find favor with God, will it be because of your deeds or because of your desperation? To be sure, the Pharisees are presented poorly from verse 1 on, yes, and the mood is set. Luke tells us, that even though they invite Jesus to this meal, look at your text in verse one, it says they are watching him carefully. Make a note of that. Literally, the phrase that's translated watching carefully in your ESV is watching lurkingly. The sense is very much negative. They're watching scrupulously in such a way that they hope. Okay, they're rooting for him to do something that they could catch him. Doing and they could call him on something they could critique or otherwise criticize. So this isn't merely watching, you understand. This is a posture of looking in order to pounce. It's to not hope for the best, but for the worst. It's the opposite of giving the benefit of the doubt. This is what self righteousness does, right? This is not what self righteousness does. You think about it. If you believe that your acceptance by God and man is based on your performance or your keeping of rules or your being able to be seen as righteous on your own, it benefits you when other people can be shown, yes, to be less righteous, less holy, less impressive and less put together. Does it not? We do this far more than we perhaps realize. And the more I thought about this this week, the more I felt shamed and recognized how much I do it, if I'm being honest. There are all kinds of ways you can see this happening in the world. Let's consider a couple. When a politician on the other side of the aisle does something wicked, crooked, underhanded, we can sit back and say, my side would never do that, right? When we see even someone who we know falls or fails, we think, I'm glad I'm not like them. I wouldn't have done what they did. We can see someone make a decision and say, I wouldn't have made that decision. We can see a parent scold their child publicly at the store and think, I'm glad I wouldn't do something like that. We do this all kinds of ways, don't we? You can see it in the way that some of the most popular internet videos, have you ever thought about this, are of people getting hurt or or failing at what they're attempting to do. We have this like sick fascination in watching people fail. Or a few years ago, there was a podcast that came out about Mark Driscoll called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And it's like everybody was listening to it in the Christian world and subsequently self-congratulating that they would never be like him. It's this this posture that the Pharisee takes in chapter 18 of Luke's gospel when, when he thanks God that he's not like what? Other people. And he thanks God that he's especially not like the worst person he knows, which is a tax collector. Why would we do that? Why do we do that? Why do we watch people with a critical and uncharitable spirit? Why do we see people do things and smugly think, I would never do that? Well, it's for the same reason as the Pharisees. Because then we can bask in the glow of our own perceived righteousness. Is that not why you do it? That's why I do it. When people act foolish and I see them act foolish, I can talk about their foolishness because the more I talk about it, the better I feel about myself. And I need to do that if my righteousness is based on my performance. Isn't that why gossip is so tempting? What better way to be seen as good when we, than we can highlight why someone else is bad? And the worse we can present them, the better we think we are. There are many problems with this disposition that's inherent in all of our hearts, but the biggest problem is that we're comparing ourselves to the wrong person, aren't we? Of course, if you compare yourself to other people and you watch them with scrutiny, you'll have no trouble finding someone who you think is worse than you, right? That's easy. But the one we're supposed to compare ourselves to is Jesus, not other people. When we do that, when we compare ourselves to Jesus, how do we then look? How does our righteousness fare then? I want you to think about a roller coaster. If you're in an amusement park, you have to be a certain height, yes, to ride the roller coaster. Like there's a sign that has a height, that has height requirements you can stand in front of, right, and see if you're tall enough. Well, guess what? It doesn't matter in that case if you're taller than other people, does it? If you walk up to the employee and you say, hey there, uh, if, you, if you walk up to the employee trying to get on the ride, and he says, hey there, tiny, you need to be this tall to ride the roller coaster. And you say, but sir, I'm taller than other people. What, you, what will he say? That doesn't matter because that's not the right measure. You see, what matters is that your head reached this part of the tape measure. See, it doesn't matter if we can find someone who has failed or who we think is in a worse spiritual state than us. (coughs) What matters is that we fall short of the glory of God. Compare yourself to Jesus, the perfect God-man, and see how you measure up. How would you measure up to the only person who has never committed a single sin? How would you measure up to the one who has never failed? How would you measure up to the one who has always done the will, the will of God even unto death? That's the measurement that we need because it's the only one that will help us to see our true desperation and our need to cry out for rescue. But if you think you don't need rescued, you'll never ask for it, will you? If you always think you're better than other people, you'll have a hard time thinking that you're that bad which will make it hard for you to be desperate for salvation that comes from outside of yourself. Writing on the Pharisees, writing on the Pharisee in the parable of Luke 18, Michael Reeves says this, scrupulous in all the wrong ways, he did not know his own heart. He failed to see how deep God's scrutiny goes, showing his ignorance of the word of God, which pierces the deepest recesses of the heart. He thought of righteousness as a mere matter of external performance and behavior. Judging by outward appearance, he could see and condemn the speck in his brother's eye, but was serenely oblivious to the rot within his own soul. In reality, this disciplined and outwardly righteous man was a gross transgressor against the very law he claimed to uphold. So committed to this type of scrutiny were the Pharisees that it was very likely that they invited the man with dropsy to this meal because they knew who Jesus was and wanted to see what he would do. They they surely, surely had heard about other Sabbath miracles that Jesus had done. Maybe even the time that Jesus' disciples were plucking grain and eating it on the Sabbath and Jesus didn't stop him. This is surely a trap. So what will Jesus do? Jesus takes the initiative, as he typically does, and he asks them a question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? You see what Jesus does? He traps the trappers. There's no good answer for this question. See, if the Pharisees say, no then they lack compassion. If they say yes, then they show that their tradition is bad. But in all of it, Jesus is asking a question that just hangs right there in the air before them. Why did you invite this sick man? See, here is another problem inherent in Phariseeism and self-righteousness. Doing right things for the wrong reason. You could obey and you can miss the point of obedience. You can begin to trust in your supposed goodness and you miss your need for the gospel. Look at the Pharisees. Is it not good to protect the Sabbath? Isn't it good that they thought the day was holy? That's good. And they wanted to protect it and make sure it was observed properly. Those are good things. But then it morphed into something unholy. The day of rest became a day of burden. They were so strictly followed the rules all the while they were thinking they were doing it for God. But they missed the point of the whole day. This not only created a trust in the wrong things, it made them hypocrites because they applied the rules inconsistently. In other words, it mattered more, and this is the key of self-righteousness, it mattered more that they appeared holy than it did that they were actually holy. Jesus knows what they're thinking. They're thinking what the synagogue leader of chapter 13 was thinking, that Jesus could wait one more day, right, to heal the man. What does Jesus ask in verse 5? He asks, essentially, if you saw your animal or your son trapped in a pit and they had fallen in, would you yell down, sorry, I'll come and get you tomorrow. It's the Sabbath. So I can't help you or God will be mad at me. You understand, don't you? Who would do that? No one. But but where the Pharisees find comfort is in their performative righteousness. If people could just see them being righteous... If people could just see their disapproval of Sabbath breaking, then it didn't matter what they did when they were alone outside pulling their donkey out of a pit. It didn't matter to them that they missed the spirit of the Sabbath through their trying to keep the Sabbath through extra biblical rules. What mattered was, do people see that I am virtuous and righteous? Jesus' indignation comes from the fact that Sabbath was created by God for people so that they could rest and rest in Him and His grace. The Sabbath becomes bastardized in the worst way when it is turned into a day that is burdensome with all of its additional rules made up by people. In other words, if there ever was a day for someone to be loosed from their bonds of sin or sickness, it was the Sabbath. A day to remember the necessity of resting in God, both for salvation and to provide what is needed for life. Do you see that in self-righteousness, not only will you be a critiquing grump all the time, but you'll always be tired. Do you realize that? There's ironically no rest for the Pharisees and those like them. Why? Because they constantly must try to be righteous, to work for God and people to see them, and they're always keeping records of their rights and others' wrongs, so they continue to feel like they aren't a fraud. There's no rest when you must constantly prove that you are good enough and righteous enough and moral enough to gain approval of God and others. But what they're doing is simply running on a treadmill. They're just wearing themselves out, but they're not going anywhere. Self-righteousness and self-justification makes you both tired and smelly. And unfortunately, we're typically the last ones to smell it on ourselves. John Maxwell tells a story about a time that a grandpa was visiting his grandchildren And in the afternoon, the grandpa would always take a nap. One day, the grandkids decided to play a joke on him. What they did was they put Limburger cheese in the grandpa's mustache. When he woke up, you know, he started to sniff and he said, this room stinks. And then he went into the kitchen and he said, it stinks in here too. Then he went outside to breathe some fresh air. And after a minute, he said, the whole world stinks. Trevin Wax says, that's what the self-righteous person is like. They can sniff out the sins and shortcomings of everyone around them, and they think everyone stinks except them. But sometimes the stink is on you. So what's the alternative? The problem is that this self-justifying, self-righteous Pharisaism is our default mode. Do you realize this? This is our disposition. It's the natural disposition of all of our hearts. Everyone wants to self-justify. Everyone wants to be seen as good and virtuous and morally upright. Is that what you want? Don't you want people to see you as moral? Let's be honest. Everyone wants the approval of others. Everyone also knows whether they want to admit it or not that they aren't good enough on their own to be saved. We know in our heart of hearts there's something amiss. And we know that no matter how hard we try, we can not accomplish our own salvation which is why we are constantly hopping on the treadmill of our performance. The alternative is to be like the man who had dropsy. What do we know of him? Not much. No name is given. No location of where he was from is given. No words are spoken by him. No explanation of why he is there. No explanation of where his dropsy stemmed from. Nothing at all is told about him except that he is sick. And we can safely speculate that he is being used by the Pharisees to trap Jesus. We can also safely recognize that he is a social outcast. Because people assume someone who had dropsy was a moral degenerate who got their illness as a result of a sinful lifestyle or for uncleanness and thus was being punished by God. This man then had few friends, little contact with people, and perhaps was very surprised that he was invited to a meal at the house of the Pharisees on the Sabbath. But then he might have discovered as this scene unfolded, he was simply being used by the Pharisees to try to trap their opponent. But here again, Jesus shows his compassion, doesn't he? He takes the first and only move toward the sick man. Like the woman who was doubled over in chapter 13, the man doesn't ask anything of Jesus. He doesn't approach Jesus. He doesn't speak to Jesus. He doesn't come there to see if Jesus can heal him. We aren't told that he had big faith or merit of his own kind whatsoever. All we see once again is Jesus taking notice of someone that no one else notices. All we see is Jesus approaching someone no one else would approach. All we see is Jesus touch someone no one wanted to touch. All we see is Jesus initiate the healing of someone who couldn't help themselves. Don't miss the compassion in Jesus' actions. In verse 4, look at this. Make a note of this, if you would. It says, he took him and healed him and sent him away. Make a note of the words took him. This means Jesus either embraced the man, like he hugged him, or he otherwise laid his hands on him. In one way or the other, Jesus touched a man who probably hadn't been touched in a long time. Jesus didn't have to do that, did he? he have to hug him? We've seen him heal with just a word, or even from a distance. But here we see him close the gap and hug or touch the man to heal him of his infirmities and to cause him to feel the love that God has for sinners and for outcasts and for the unclean. How can we be like the man with dropsy? Simply this. By seeing our helpless estate, seeing that we are sick and in need of help, seeing that we cannot help or save ourselves, and thus receiving the healing touch of a compassionate Christ. It's that simple. Ours is a disease more serious than dropsy. Our disease is a spiritual one, it goes deeper than skin. Our sickness is that we are fallen rebels. Our sickness is that we try to save ourselves. Our sickness is that we come up with ways to show ourselves righteous and thus live for the approval of people. Ours is a sickness of trying our best to deny that we are weak and needy. Ours is a sickness that wants to prove in our dark little hearts that we are better than other people. But don't you see that rescue only comes to those who admit they're drowning? Only those who admit they're in bondage can have their chains loosed. Only those who realize they are sick and admit it will receive the care of the great physician. The Pharisees are in bondage in their self-justification, but they can't see it. They're sick, but they think they're well. They're drowning, but they're kicking their little feet as hard as they can. Thus, they remain in chains, ill, and drowning. The man, on the other hand, he knows he's sick. He knows he's unclean. He knows he's helpless. And isn't that better? It's better because to be like him is to be closer to salvation because only those who could cry out to Jesus for help and mean it will be saved. Charles Spurgeon said, as long as a man has anything to boast of, there's no Christ for him. But the moment he has nothing of his own, Christ is his. While you are anything, Christ is nothing to you. But when you are nothing, Christ is everything. All warrant that a sinner needs in coming to Christ is to know that he is a sinner, This is always and forever true. Whether you're coming to Christ for the first time or the thousandth time, all Jesus ever requires of you is your weakness. All he requires is a mere calling to him saying, I need you. Even if they come from trembling lips and are nothing but a whisper, even if all you can muster is a groan, he will hear you. But when you're full, full of yourself, full of your accomplishments, full of your morality, full of your deeds, full of your reputation, you are ironically enough, you have too much to be saved. D.L. Moody said, God sends no one away empty but those who are full of themselves. And I, I so desperately need you to see that Jesus requires, all that he requires is nothing in order to save you and sustain you and comfort you. And I need you to know that because you and I will always, always, always be tempted to default to claims of our own merit. See, Jesus isn't glorified in your attempts at self-reliance and self-sufficiency. He isn't glorified when we think, I need to be helpless to be saved, but I'll take it from here. He is glorified in our weakness because then he will be shown to be strong. We can't be both, do you realize this? You can't be both powerful and Jesus be shown powerful through you. Either Jesus is all our hope and stay, as the old hymn said, or he is none. Either his blood is sufficient to cleanse us, or it isn't. Either he is our righteousness, our cleanness, our champion, our savior, or we try to have all those things on our own and end up tired and dead and hell bound. John Piper illustrates it like this. He says, suppose you're totally paralyzed and could do nothing for yourself but talk. And suppose a strong and reliable friend promised to live with you and do whatever you needed done. How could you glorify this friend if a stranger came to see you? Would you glorify his generosity and strength by trying to get out of bed and carry him? No, you would say, friend, please come lift me up. And would you put a pillow behind me so I could look at my guests? And would you please put a glass glasses on for me? And so your visitor would learn from your request that you are helpless and that your friend is strong and kind. You glorify your friend by needing him and by asking him for help and counting on him. He said, how then do we glorify him? We ask God to do for us through Christ what we can't do for ourselves. And see, this is Jesus' delight He wants to embrace sinners. He wants to be your Sabbath rest. He wants to be your strength and your righteousness and your champion and your burden bearer because he wants to give you rest. And the only rest there is, is rest in his arms. And they are open, but they're open only for those who are helpless, weak, and needy. That's why most people don't go to him. Dane Ortland said, when you come to Christ for mercy and love and help in your anguish and perplexity and sinfulness, you're going with the flow of his own deepest wishes, not against them. Christ's heart is not drained by our coming to him. His heart is filled up all the more by our coming to him. To put it the other way around, when we hold back lurking in the shadows, fearful and failing, we miss out not only on our own increased comfort, but on Christ's increased comfort. We see over and over in the gospel That Jesus' harshest rebukes are for the self-reliant, don't we? And the self-justifying and the self-righteous. His kindest, most patient disposition is always towards the weak and the needy and the lowly and the helpless. So which are you? So all of this is related to our next scene, don't you think? Scene number two. It takes place in seven through eleven in the form of a short parable, which Jesus told the Pharisees and those at dinner. Let's summarize the parable, okay? The parable is pretty simple and straightforward. Jesus wants them and us to imagine we are invited to a wedding. And we walk in, and we immediately go to the seat of honor. But then, the one who invited you sees that you're in the wrong seat. So they come up to you, and they tell you that you need to move to the last seat of honor. So everyone at the wedding is watching this happen, right? Uh, all of them are seeing this unfold as, and you are shamed as the host comes to you and speaks to you. Then you walk through the room, past their gaze, right in the wor- to the worst seat, and everyone is looking and whispering and talking to each other. And how embarrassing, right? Daryl Box says the Greek is graphic, depicting the shame felt with each very public step away from the center of the action. Says Jesus, you can avoid that kind of embarrassment by not esteeming yourself so highly and purposefully taking the worst seat instead. That way, if the host wants to give you a better seat, he can do that and everyone will see you elevated rather than embarrassed. Do you see? So the main point of this text and lesson is verse 11. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who, humble, who are humble will be exalted. Jesus is telling us that we need not overestimate ourselves. Pride will get you nowhere good is what he's saying. Even if in our culture we call pride self-assurance or confidence or strength and we try to spin it right as a virtue, Jesus sees pride as a negative trait that has all kinds of sinful consequences. Jesus sees seeking the seat of honor as revealing something about the person and it's not good. Self-promotion is all over the place in our society. Is that true? It shows us that not much has changed in the human condition for 2,000 years. Let's just be honest here, okay? We all want first place, do we not? We all want the best seat and the most honor and the most recognition and the biggest prizes and the most graces, and we feel entitled to those things. If we want it, we should have it. If it's good, we should get it. If it's bad, we shouldn't have to have it or otherwise endure it. As Matt Chandler said, we all carry an insidious prosperity gospel around in our dark little entitled hearts. This is all pride. Pride is to fail to estimate oneself before God. It's to miss out on redemption. It's to miss out on growth. It's to miss out on being like Jesus. Dale Ralph Davis tells of how J.B. Phillips, who was a New Testament commentator, was consulting a psychiatrist and that the psychiatrist could tell that one of Philip's problem was, quote, shame at the unacceptable conceit revealed by his inner thoughts. So the psychiatrist told Phillips, jot down these thoughts when they come creeping in, okay? Which he did. I'm going to read you one of Philip's entry in May 1945. This is what he wrote. See if you can uh, relate to this. He said, I want to be colossal or soon die. Christianity is a bore unless it can help me to demonstrate my uniqueness. I really haven't any interest in others unless they're connected with building up my reputation. My reputation, that's the thing. The best vicar ever. Says Davis on this, that is stark and perhaps shocking. We try to evade such candor, but I have to say I understand that perfectly. Pardon the grammar, he said, but it is both mad and me. It is well with my soul to see how unwell my soul is. See, our own tendencies to pride and entitlement are necessary for initial salvation and seeing these pride and entitlements are necessary for initial salvation and Christian growth in Christ. How can we go to Jesus with the neediness and helplessness we talked about at length if we're proud and entitled? If we think we inherently deserve good things, Won't the prospect of our own inadequacy and wrath-deserving souls be rejected by us out of hand? How can we grow in Jesus who himself did not think equality with God was a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and took on the form of a slave and was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross? Let's put it another way, and let's put it starkly and just be real, okay? If humility is the posture of the Creator God... Who in the world do we think that we are that we could be proud? What do we have to be proud of? How can we take up a cross if we think we deserve a golden throne? How can we think we deserve a crown of roses when the God man wore a crown of thorns? How can we kill sin when we think we're entitled to self indulgence? How about this, in in times of hardship or struggle or suffering, how can we not make the mistake of wasting our trials? How can we endure if we think the world and God owes us better circumstances? It is pride that says in every circumstance that isn't positively benefiting us, I deserve better. It is pride That makes us miss out on all the good things God provides us because we're focused too much on difficulties or only on the things we think is being withheld from our self-proclaimed deserving hands. It is pride that is the enemy of gratefulness and thankfulness. You know as well as I do that trials and hardships reveal character. Did you know that? They show us and others who we really are. And only by cultivating a humble heart will you be cultivating a grateful heart that can make you a better person when hardship comes. Because here's the thing. Trials will make you or break you. They will make you better or worse, but they won't leave you the same. And a prideful heart will cause you to respond to hardships and difficulties by lashing out and becoming mean and bitter. Why? Because in our entitled hearts, we have been puffed up to think We deserve nothing but the best the world has to offer. The world owes us. And that prideful disposition comes to the fore when we get what we think we don't deserve. Do you see? And T. Wright said, Pride notoriously is the great cloud which blots out the sun of God's generosity. If I reckon that I deserve to be favored by God, not only do I declare that I don't need His grace, mercy, and love, but I imply that those who don't deserve it shouldn't have it. Or Dane Ortlund says, pride grumbles at everything, but humility can joyfully receive life as a gift. Perhaps we have it backwards. We think humility is an impossible burden, but in reality, it's light as a feather. It is pride that makes life gray and drab. Humility brings out the color. What the world teaches and what our flesh leads us to is to strive to be in first place in all things. Do you believe that? Do you see that in yourself? We don't want to simply be recognized. We're told we have to go and take it if we're to get it. Aren't those who are prized the most in our society those who have the self-esteem to pursue and take what they want? Those are the ones that are paraded out as champions and people to look up to. Or, you know, the other side of pride says I shouldn't actually have to do anything, right? Because I deserve for things to come to me. Do you guys see how insidious this is? But what does Jesus say to all of this? Jesus says that humility is the best course in all affairs. Now here's the bad news for the proud. Do you see the bad news for the proud in verse 11? If you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. What does that mean? Not to get too technical, but this is what's called the divine passive, which means that if you exalt yourself in this life, If you elevate yourself, if you are proud, if you're a self-inflated windbag, if you insist on your rights at every turn and think you deserve only good and never bad circumstances, God will be the one who humbles you in the end. Jesus is saying that those who are proud walk up to the best seat in the house. And who it is, who is it that should come up to them and say, Sir, ma'am, your seat is actually way back there. It's God himself. The proud will be brought down in the end. As Mary exclaimed in the Magnificat in chapter 1, through Jesus, a great reversal will take place where the mighty are brought down from their thrones and the humble are exalted, where the hungry are filled and the full are sent away empty. Don't miss this. Those who seek in this life to be first place will end up either last or have no place at the banquet at all. Does seeking first place pay off? Maybe in this life, but not in eternity. Either you can be humble or God will humble you. This is what Jesus is saying. What will God do in the end for the humble? He will exalt them. Those who actively seek last place will in the end be exalted. It's like a wedding guest who walks in and takes the worst seat in the house. And then the host comes up to them and says, what are you doing over here? Come, I will give you the seat of honor. That's what the humble get in the end. Rather than being told, you're sitting too close, get out of here. The humble are told, you are too far away, come sit near the king. Which one would you prefer? If you're being honest. Humility is unglamorous, isn't it? It's dirty, it's scorned, it's unheralded, it's servile, it's mocked it endures blows, it's a place where the streets aren't busy, and there is no competition because no one is there, because everyone is rushing to the top. Humility is an essential, you need to hear this, take this away from this today, humility is an essential key to the Christian life. As pride is the root of all sin, so humility is the root of discipleship. Augustine was right when he said, if you should ask me what are the ways of God, I would tell you that the first is humility, the second is humility, and the third is humility. Now that there are no other precepts to give, but if humility does not precede all that we do, our efforts are fruitless. James Edwards says, Christian discipleship is not self-promotion, but freedom from it, freedom from self-obsession of self. Humility is the way of Christ. Prideful Christian is an oxymoron. Humility was modeled for us by our Savior himself, and he says, pursue my likeness, and you may be treated as I was treated, rejected, and scorned, and mocked, and hated, and spat upon, and suffering, but in the end, I will give you the seat of honor. See, this really comes down to, one, whose ethics we're adopting, and two, what world we're living for. If you've adopted the ethics of this world, everything I said today has sounded strange. Everything I've said about the goodness of humility and the repugnancy of pride will sound off. Everything I said about seeking last place instead of first will sound backward. And that's because the ethic of Christ flips everything on its head, which is why it's superior. In Jesus' ethic... It's the lowly and the despised and the disabled and the lame and the marginalized and the oppressed and the ignored who we are to seek and exalt. In Jesus' ethic, we resist those who would use their power and influence and ability to be loud and demand and threaten because those are the ones who God resists too. In Jesus' ethic, our relationships are self-giving, not built on reciprocity, not expecting anything in return. And all that sounds weird to an ear in tune with the world. But for those who have kingdom ears, it's one of the most beautiful songs there is. And which world are you living for? Those who are proud and want first place have an entitlement mentality. They live for this world. They want to be exalted Now. They want first place now. They want their reward now. They want and they want and they want and they deserve and they deserve and they deserve and they talk about their rights and their rights and their rights and they want it all immediately. Those who are living for another world? Don't mind being last, little, weak, helpless, poor, servile and ignored because they know they look like and smell like Jesus and in the end they will be exalted by the only one whose opinion ultimately matters. Jesus their Lord. So which are you? Which are you? Are you the proud or the humble? Now, see, that's kind of the thing, right? If you just said you're humble in your heart, it's gone, right? It's gone now. If you just said, I'm the most, I'm the most humble person I've ever met, right? It's gone, okay? As soon as you're basking in your own humility, you've become proud in how humble you are. This is why this must be, by Christ's power, something we constantly seek. It must be a posture of life, and it is there that we'll find freedom from the bondage of pride and self-exaltation, which are, like self-justification, burdensome treadmills. Only Christ can give that freedom, and it's freedom indeed. Let me uh, begin to close with an illustration from, uh, can you imagine, Gerald Tolkien's book, The Hobbit, Okay. Bilbo Baggins, this is at the end of the book, Bilbo Baggins, the main character, has returned home from his adventure and he's reflecting on everything that happened. And his friend Gandalf the wizard uh, is with him and he says, Bilbo, then the prophecies of the old songs have turned out to be true after a fashion. And Gal says, of course, and why should not they prove true? Surely you don't disbelieve the prophecies because you had a hand in bringing them about yourself. You don't really suppose, do you? That all your adventures and escapes were managed by mere luck, just for your sole benefit? You are a very fine person, Mr. Baggins, and I am very fond of you, but you are only quite a little fellow in a wide world after all. And thank goodness, said Bilbo. Commenting on this, Dane Orland said, Oh, how I love this passage. It conveys a sense of relief, of humility. Being a big deal is a burden. Humility, in contrast, means you don't interpret everything in relation to yourself, and you don't need to. It is the death of the narrow, suffocating filter of self-referentiality. It is the nourishing, calming acceptance that you have a small place in a much larger story, that your life is being guided by something far bigger than your plans or controls and ser- serving something far bigger than your sole benefit. Humility is the joy of embracing life as it is meant to be lived. Humility is accepting Gandalf's rebuke that you are only quite a little fellow in a wide world after all and responding like Bilbo with relief. And laughter. And although we are small, and although we are weak and needy and helpless and hopeless on our own, we are nonetheless loved with an unfathomable love by a gracious Savior who delights in being the strength for the humble. But He resists the self assured and the proud. So, which are you? Are you pursuing humility? Are you at this moment resting? in Jesus. Go to him today and find rest from pride, from self-justification, from self-righteousness, from Pharisaism, and from all that binds you and burdens you. His arms are always open, ready to embrace the needy, weak, and helpless. Go to him for whatever burden you brought here today. He will embrace you in his arm, and in the arms of our dear Savior, there are 10,000 charms.